Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Green was not really a strategist, but he, uh, you know, he was he, he was a brilliant improviser. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor H. Allen Skinner discussing General Nathaniel Green's Grand Southern Strategy, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor H. Allen Skinner, and he'll be discussing Nathaniel Green and his grand strategy for taking the war to the South. Allen Skinner gives us a wonderful article this week and a fine interview, as he discusses the ins and outs of the Southern campaign from the British and Patriot sides, a subject he knows intimately. Uh, He lives in the South, he talks about it with authority, and he offers some new helpful insights into the conflict as a whole. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with H. Allen Skinner. Allen Skinner, thank you for joining us. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Tell us about your background. Okay, uh, so I'm a uh, military historian. Um, I've got about uh, over 12 years of experience, uh, both as a uh, Army civilian, and also I've done some historian work uh, while I was in the Army before my retirement. So I've got a master's degree in military history, and uh, I'm midway through an American history PhD Uh, from Liberty University, and uh, part of that work uh, was involved in what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, So in my day job, I've published uh, two uh, Revolutionary War era uh, staff rides. So in layman terms, a staff ride is is applied history, um, is uh, taking students through, you know, the study of a particular battle or campaign and using it to derive uh, leadership lessons for, you know, primarily military students. So that's a staff ride in a nutshell. Uh, So I've I've done one on the Guilford Courthouse campaign and uh, and then then one on the Battle of Kings Mountain. And the Kings Mountain book was selected as a finalist uh, for the Army Historical Foundation's uh, Distinguished Writing Award uh, for 2020, which was really cool. And uh, right now I'm waiting on uh, editorial work on my latest book, which is a campaign study of the 1780 siege of Charleston. And so uh, hopefully everything goes well and that book will be out in mid-2023. So uh, as a disclaimer, uh, you know, the views that I express in this podcast are my own and don't reflect official positions of my employer. What first drew your interest into this topic? Okay, um, so a little bit of background information, and I'll be very concise. Uh, whenever 
I started working uh, for the Army as a civilian historian. Uh, I'm based down here in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, for Journal of the American Revolution, uh, readers will know that Well Southern Campaign was, was the, the center, or South Carolina was the center of the Southern Campaign. Uh, you know, you've got a significant number of battles that take place. Uh, everything between 1776, 1780 to Charleston, uh, Cal Kings Mountain, um, you you know, so there's a lot that goes on here. And well, uh, to my chagrin, uh, I didn't, I didn't really know that. Um, I'm more of a civil war, uh, you know, 20th century military historian. And, uh, as I got down here, I realized that, uh, you know, there's, there's an incredible amount of revolutionary war history, uh, within, you know, two hour drive. And, and so started digging into the subject uh, realize there's a lot of good leadership lessons. And, you know, so, um, so anyway, that's, that, that's, uh, basically the background interest and, uh, green, especially, uh, comes across just as a fascinating character. And, uh, I'll touch on a little bit more about some of the things that I found with him. Um, but he just, you know, really resonated as a, as a topic of study. Give us some background to the Southern campaign. Okay. So uh, you have to go back to uh, early in the, the American Revolution. Uh, you know, the British in uh, 1776 are really focused on the, the North. Um, you know, there's, there's um, and again, I'm just doing a very, very short sketch here, principally focused on, on uh, um, cutting the New England states from the Mid-Atlantic and then the Southern colonies uh, but uh, there's a lot of time that's involved with getting all uh, all the combat power, you know, the troops and the supplies and the equipment coming from England. And uh, so you've got a significant amount of, uh, of uh, regiments that are sitting in New York idle. And um, so Sir Henry Clinton is appointed to originally come down to North Carolina and organize Loyalist Militia. Well, in the amount of time it takes him to get from New York down to the Outer Banks, uh, you have the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, uh, which is a major Loyalist defeat. So he lands, and then no Loyalists to organize. Uh, Sir Peter Parker, who is the, the Royal Navy uh, commander, working they're working together. It's not joint. They're, they're co-equals, which causes problems. Uh, long story short, they decide to um, assault Charleston, failed miserably. And uh, that's the end, pretty, uh, pretty well British major involvement in, in the South. So fast forward to uh, most of the fighting's going on in the North. Uh, Saratoga campaign, uh, you have Burgoyne's defeat. And now the British are at a, okay, we need to do a strategic reappraisal. Uh, so that decision is made to, we're going to focus on a, a Southern campaign uh, the British hold uh, East Florida, uh, the uh, St. Augustine, and so now uh, Sir Henry Clinton is the uh, commander-in-chief of North America. So he masses his combat power and uh, works a sequential campaign, uh, uh, ends up retaking um, Savannah uh, in Georgia, and then it, during 1779 into May of 1780, ends up um, capturing Charleston, by basically encirclement and siege operations. Uh, you know, it's the largest American defeat in the South, and it eliminates the American Continental Forces, uh, Benjamin Lincoln, and I think about 5,000. Basically, the, the Continental Line 
of Georgia, North Carolina, now South Carolina, and most of Virginia. So in the aftermath, you have the Battle of Waxhaws, which eliminates the remaining amount of continental forces. Um, fast forward, uh, Horatio Gates, who is the, uh, the, the quote, victor of Saratoga. Um, he's appointed to command the Southern Department by, by con the Continental Congress, despite uh, General Washington's reservations. Uh, Gates comes down here, uh, moves immediately um, from Hillsborough, North Carolina against Camden, uh, meets Cornwallis and uh, is badly beaten, um, loses a good portion of the, the his continental forces. And uh, in the aftermath, uh, Nathaniel Green is appointed commander of the Southern Campaign. So he is appointed in October and he takes command in December of 1780. So that's at least the that's at least the background to the Southern Campaign, about to where we're going to start our main narrative. Alan, for those who aren't familiar, give us a quick catch-up on Nathaniel Green. <laughs> Green Green is a fascinating character. Um, what I what I think is uh, very interesting, uh, you know, he he is um, someone you would never really um, peg as as a you know as a successful battlefield commander. I mean, he's He's raised in a uh, raised in the Quaker faith, and he comes from a you know a, a small, basically a small uh, business owner, uh, you know ironworks in Rhode Island. Uh, so he has no military background. He's not really uh, he has very little formal education. Uh, he's literate. That's about the extent of it. And uh, so with the um, you know the rise of tensions uh, leading up to the outbreak of the the American Revolution. Um, he uh, helps organize the Kentish Guards, which is a local militia group. And, uh, you know, he's excommunicated uh, from the Quaker uh, church because of that. And uh, Green is, he's asthmatic and he has a, he has a limp. And uh, which is interesting is, you know, he's, he's basically, he is uh, rejected as an officer in the guards initially. Well, Apparently somebody recognizes potential, so he goes from a private militia to a brigadier general of militia in the Rhode Island, uh, uh, you know, state state forces, and uh, so his regiment marches to the siege of Boston, and uh, that's where he, uh, you know, first attracts the notice of General George Washington. He sees something in green uh, that uh, he's he's a smart guy. And uh, more than smart, but he seems like he's he's a, he he has that that in the uh, you know intangible quality of a good commander. Now Green, you know, certainly he's a new guy, um, he, and he certainly makes some serious mistakes. Um, you know, the loss of Fort Washington during the New York campaign is is probably his worst defeat. But to his credit, Green learns from his errors, and uh, uh, you know he becomes Washington's most trusted lieutenants. Um, and after after the 1770 Pennsylvania campaign, uh, Green is you know unwillingly uh, assumes the role of the quartermaster general of the army. Uh, you know works miracles with basically with no money or you know with worthless continental dollars. And then up to October 1780, when Washington nominates him to replace Horatio Gates. So he's a, he's a very fascinating guy. Um, and what's interesting is, is in reading in uh, Green, uh, Green is essentially self-taught. Uh, you know, he learns uh, he he learns the translated classics or reads them, and so what he does is he gets uh, he learns this uh, you know grasp of of 
uh, a Roman um, military science, and more than just Roman, but you know, he he uh, reads about Marshall Sachs, Frederick the Great, and uh, you know what? What's, what's what's interesting is more than just reading, but what he does is Green is a very you know, he, he learns in the school of hard knocks, you know, he synthesizes, uh, you know, his, his tactics and especially his, his military strategy, you know, not only from self-study observation and, but he also, he takes it from input from Washington and then also from the Continental Congress. So, uh, you know, he's, he, he's a very remarkable individual. What was Green's grand strategy? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. Now, one of the things that I found with, with reading um, a lot of the historiography of Green is, and this is a, probably a, a knock against historians, but sometimes we, we historians are, are imprecise in our terms. That's probably the best way to, to put it. So what I wanted to do is, especially in terms of both strategy and tactics, okay? So, so basically, tactics are... That's how small units are employed on on the battlefield. You know, basically, in other words, small unit actions, um, and in operations, that's the the actions and movements of units commanded by a general officer. And, and in modern terms, that's the the linkage between strategy and then the and then the tactics. Um, so military strategy is the coordinated military actions of an army operating within a theater, like, for example, the Southern Campaign or the Southern Department of the American Revolution. So that would be the, the strategic level. And what's important, though, is grand strategy is that's like the whole of government approach. Like in modern terms, uh, you know, the president will issue the national security strategy. And it isn't just about military, but they're talking about diplomatic and economic um, you know, there's all basically all the things that go together to forming a, you know, a whole of government approach. That's that's in modern terms. And what I found in reading Green, Green is Green is very good about uh, taking a like a 1780 version of, of grand strategy. So he's not just worried about, you know, moving moving regiments on the battlefield, but he's paying attention to uh, economic factors. Um, you know, he's definitely uh, pays very close attention to civil considerations, you know, both uh, patriot and, and loyalist, you know, so, uh, so sympathizers on both sides, economic considerations and, and, you know, which is very remarkable. So that's, that's, that in a nutshell is what we're talking about with um, Green's grand strategy. That's at least his background. So fast forward to the Southern campaign. Uh, you know, Green takes over, and really one of the first things that he he realizes, um, you know, the British are uh, numerically stronger. Uh, you know, Gates has defeated Camden. You uh, you've lost a good portion of the uh, Maryland and Delaware division. You know, you've got remnants, so there's a small corps, but he knows he can't face them in open battle. Um, but also to simply sit in camp and let the British go about consolidating the control is not acceptable either. So what Green, uh, Green does is, is he, he basically modifies, uh, you know, Washington, uh, Washington's often described as having a Fabian strategy, um, you know, simply exhaustion and, uh, you know, you're treating the, the, um, the British without exposing the Continentals to destruction. So that's, that's uh, in, in a general uh, way of thinking about it. So what uh, Green does is is um, he realizes he can't face Cornwallis in open battle, and so he ends up defighting his army, which 
you know, which is a violation of the principle of mass. You never divide, especially an inferior force in the face of a superior enemy. But Green realizes that he has to do things differently um, because he has to contest British control of the space. And, and so this is the background to what we now know is the Battle of Cowpens, which uh, uh, takes place in January 1781. Now, what's, what's important here is he's not necessarily looking for a fight. Um, and it's very instructive. Green, Green's in, uh, uh, um, orders to Daniel Morgan, I can't quote them at length because they're very long, but what he does, though, is he's very, he gives out some very specific, uh, you know, kind of like left and right limits of what he wants Morgan to do and not do. But he's, but he's very careful. He's, he says he wants Morgan to operate west of the, uh, of the Broad River, uh, basically uh, posing a threat to the British uh, uh, logistics base at 96. You know, this one is, is we're, we're posing a threat and I'm distracting Cornwallis. Um, spirit up the people. Um, you know, suppress the Tories, gather up supplies from the British, and by and large operate in the battle space. But he's very careful, though. He just says, he, he tells Morgan to act, uh, op, uh, operate defensively or defensively as, you know, as the situation dictates. Now, so he doesn't say uh, go fight, but he also doesn't tell him to go out and, you know, and get himself into an engagement. And then meanwhile, Green takes the, the rest of the army and goes off to the uh, Cheraw Hills, area in southeastern South Carolina. So what he does is he has been essentially by splitting his forces, he has put continental forces astride Cornwallis' lines of communication and basically given him a, a tactical dilemma. So Cornwallis characteristically responds with offensive action. Uh, he ends up sending Bannister Tarleton's uh, British Legion against Morgan, uh, and the result is the Battle of Cowpens. Uh, Tarleton's forces beat badly, and uh, Cornwallis loses the, the bulk of his light infantry. So he's got a problem. Um, and, you know, Green knows he can't face a, a, a Cornwallis in open battle, so he decides he is going to do a fighting withdrawal across uh, from South Carolina into North Carolina and ultimately to Virginia, which is what we commonly know as the race for the Dan. Um, he regroups essentially uh, drags Cornwallis to the point where he can no longer support himself logistically. Um, he can't get supplies. He can't get recruits. And, you know, in the meantime, the uh, best of the Loyalist militia were either destroyed or captured at Kings Mountain. So, uh, you know, it, it sets things up for the March 1781 battle at Guilford Courthouse. Tactically, the British win, but Cornwallis essentially wrecks his army. And he goes to Wilmington, he refits, and then he decides to uh, pursue offensive action into Virginia, which leaves Green not uncontested control because there are still British forces in the battle space. But by and large, it's uh, isolated outposts. And, you know, the Patriots couldn't control most of the battle space. Uh, you know, the British still control 96, Camden, uh, Charleston, Georgetown, and then you know, and then Cheryl Hill. There's some isolated pockets, so that really sets the background to this is where Green really exercises his grand strategy. Well, so what Green does though is, is it's more than just simply uh, uh, you know tactical action though, but what he's paying attention to is he's he's thinking he he's thinking strategically because it's not simply enough to to fight the British. But what he's got to do, though, is, is he not only has to eliminate the British in the interior, 
protect Patriot supporters and consolidate uh, American control of the Carolinas uh, without, um, what's the word I'm looking for, not isolating, without alienating the fence-sitters. Uh, you know, in, in counterinsurgency doctrine, there, there's typically that, that 10% for, 10% against, and then the other 80% in the middle, you can kind of sway one way or the other. And one of the things that Green noted early in the war is that if you abuse uh, civilians, you know, especially ones that are really trying to stay neutral or aren't necessarily pro, you know, for you or against you, but they're just, they're just in the area. If you uh, open them up to abuse, you know, like plundering, um, you know, taking, stealing from them, uh, you, they tend to support the other side. And this is something the British never quite got a handle on. Uh, Cornwallis issues orders to, you know, against plundering, don't abuse the civilians, but by and large, his troops don't, uh, don't follow his orders. And so as a result, a large number of uncommitted uh, Americans in the battle space, you know, basically side with the Patriot cause. So Green realizes he's got to be very careful about that civilian consideration. So, um, so what he does is, is he focuses on just, just where I talked about the basics of those lines of effort. Um, well, and it's interesting though, because by Cornwallis takes off to Virginia around May of 1781 and about that same time period, um, Green learns of there's, there's a possible negotiated peace. Uh, peace feelers had extended from uh, the Tsar of Russia uh, offering a mediated peace. And under the rules of warfare in those days, uh, a mediated peace would be based on the Roman doctrine, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's Utai Posidatus. Essentially, it's the who holds the territory. So if the British hold undisputed uh, uh, control of territory, let's say Georgia, for example, peace negotiations are opened, the British are probably going to retain control of Georgia. Obviously, that's, that's not acceptable to Green. So Green realizes he has to uh, contest British sovereignty over any of the territory and ideally eject them from there as, as much as possible. So that's, 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 his, that's his strategy in a nutshell. So he's got a, so he's working in a couple different efforts. It's more than the tactical actions, but he's paying close attention to uh, civilian relations and also basically clearly establishing American sovereignty in, in any of the disputed territories. So what he does is, is, is uh, um, so besides pacification, elimination of the British, what he does is he has to restore civil governance. That's a key thing. And that's something the British don't do. Um, they do like a half-baked effort. So in Georgia, uh, Sir James Wright, who is the pre-war British governor, he is installed back in Georgia, but he's not given, uh, he, he has no British troops to maintain security, which causes problems. And then in the Carolinas, um, Sir Henry Clinton is, uh, has not only military, but also civil governance authority. Basically, he is military administering civilian governance. And then whenever Clinton leaves, Cornwallis has that. So you have two different approaches depending on where you're at. So it's, it, it, it's, it's more evidence of basically the British are very meddled in how they're doing things. But because of that, though, there's no, they don't really have uh, clearly established efforts of restoring the civilian governance. So there's there's that. Talk about Green's Georgia strategy. Sure, that's a great one. 
Well, because Green realizes right away, um, you know, that he really has to address Georgia because the fact that there is a royal governor, uh, you know, the British, you know, they can go to peace negotiations and say, well, wait a minute, we've got a governor. We control Georgia. Therefore, we should get into peace negotiations. So what he does is, is he writes to um, the Continental Congress, the basically the Georgia representatives and say, um, you know, look, you, you've got to, um, you know, you need to um, do a couple things to help, help me establish legitimate um, patriot sovereignty in Georgia. And the two things, one is, is that, uh, that a, um, a council, basically a governing body over the state that needs to be established in residence in the state and the other thing is, is what he calls a body of regular state troops. So we think of continentals, um, you know, because uh, having having a force of continentals in the battle space, especially Georgia troops, Georgia continentals, um, legally speaking, is is it, um, that that's a uh, a key measure to fulfilling sovereignty, if that makes sense. So what he does is is, is uh, you know he, after he writes uh, the delegates of Congress. Then what he does is he or, uh, he issues orders. General Anthony Wayne, at this point in time, has has joined Green's uh, the Southern Department along with a body of Continentals, and so he's very careful um, to to address more than just military. and And uh, if you'll uh, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to read his order because it's very very important. Um, so and I'm quoting here. This is Green's orders. Quote, you will therefore march the whole of your force for covering the country. You will open an immediate correspondence with the governor. Make such requisitions for militia as you may find requisite. Uh, the mode of subsisting your troops will also concentrate with the magistrates of the state. Be as little oppressive as possible to the people. And when you get into the lower country of Georgia, you will invite all people to join. Afford them protection and security and try by every means in your power to soften the deadly resentments subsisting between the Whigs and Tories and put a stop as much as possible to that custom of putting people to death after they've surrendering. The practice of plundering you will endeavor to check. And lastly, let your discipline be as regular and as rigid as the nature and constitution of your troops will admit. So, uh, you know, so so you notice he's very specific about it's more than just go after the British, but he's very careful to not upset the locals and not only and, uh, protect the patriots, but also don't abuse the Tories. Because well, he's already looking for reconciliation. And so after the war is over, uh, these are, they're Americans. They may be misguided, but we would still want to treat them as Americans and not, necess- and not enemies. So that's a, very, that's a, that, that's a key distinction. And, and, you know, so Wayne does a good job. Uh, he coordinates with local authorities. Um, you know, drives the British. Augusta is is isolated, and and so the uh, British regulars abandon Augusta. Uh, loyalists of detachments are mopped up, and uh, you know Wayne's pretty good though because he issues proclamations of leniency uh, to both Tories and then also to outlaws. Basically, hey, if you come in and enlist in Continental Service, uh, we we will not prosecute you for for your crimes. And so while all that's going on, uh, Green. Um, commissions uh, Colonel uh, Georgia Colonel Elijah Clark, and if you remember, Elijah Clark uh, is involved with uh, several of the earlier uh, battles along the Georgia frontier, and you know he's a very prominent uh, Georgia Patriot leader. 
by, by commissioning him in the Continental Army, what it does is that it establishes a continental presence, a Georgia continental presence in the state. Um, and then uh, uh, Green sends his paymaster to Augusta to organize local elections. And then uh, once uh, Nathan Brownson is, is appointed as the general of the Georgia State Militia, Green uh, prods the uh, Georgia's congressional delegation and says, "Okay, this is you're you're at you're at the point. You need to to have a um, um, your legislature in place and then elect a governor." And so, long story short, is is that uh, in August of 1781, uh, newly established legislature in Georgia elects Brown uh, Browson as the first. Uh, American governor of Georgia. So from Green's standpoint, he is he has completely established American sovereignty over Georgia. And so while all this is going on, Green is still fighting the British in South Carolina, because in September 1781, you have the Battle of Utah Springs, and that is the last major combat in the Southern Department. You know, there's still minor skirmishes, but by and large, uh, the British give up holding their interior enclaves they would withdraw to Savannah, Charleston, and and um, and then they stay there basically while the negotiations take place. Uh, the, you know the revolution is over with American freedom and the British withdraw. So at the end of the day, you know Green has uh, that's that's where his his grand strategy uh, gets us. What are your conclusions about Green's overall effectiveness? Sure, that's uh, uh, you know that's actually really good. I mean Green. Like I said, Green's Green's very good. Now, tactically, he's he's not really very good. Uh, you know, if, if we're doing strictly uh, battlefield actions, I mean, he pretty well loses. Uh, you know, especially as every major battle, uh, you know, Guilford Courthouse, uh, he fails the at the siege of ninety six. Um, you know, he's arguably defeated at um, Hobkirk's Hill, Utah Springs. It's a toss up. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, he, he loses the tactical actions, but he forces the British to withdraw. You know, so he's, he's very good at operational and especially the, uh, you know, getting, getting after his campaign goals. Um, a lot of times I will, you know, for the, for the Trekkies in the audience, you know, Green, uh, Green plays three-dimensional chess. You know, he's doing tactical, operational, and strategic uh, he's thinking ahead of those, whereas Cornwallis, I would say, is, is focused largely. You know, he's hoping a decisive tactical victory will will give him strategic um, benefits. And as we see at Guilford Courthouse and the later during the during the Yorktown campaign, uh, it doesn't end well uh, with um, with Cornwallis. So Green Green is a smart guy. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, he has a good base foundational basis of knowledge. Uh, he accepts criticism. He's learning. Uh, he certainly makes many many errors. And the other thing too is what really struck me with Green, and maybe this has to do with the revolutionary character of the war, is he he has a he has a ruthless streak about him that we see in. Uh, the other commanders, and I'll, I'll compare him to Benjamin Lincoln as a very good example. Uh, you know, Lincoln is described as he's, he's a great guy. He's an excellent administrator. He's, he's, he is trusted by Washington, which is the reason why he's appointed as the commander of the Southern Department. So he's, he, he ultimately ends up uh, um, orchestrating the defense of Charleston in 1780, and he has all the Continental forces in, in the South, including 
uh, the Continental Navy. And, you know, despite his very clear efforts, uh, he can't get uh, um, Commodore Whipple to, to actively defend, uh, you know, Charleston. Ultimately, the British uh, Royal Navy get into the harbor uh, and they end up surrendering. And, uh, you know, and also Lincoln's subordinates are, you know, urging him to surrender. Um, and, you know, there's no evidence that, that Lincoln ever disciplines these guys. Uh, you know, other than, um, I, you know, by and large, he doesn't seem like he's very, very strict with them. So by contrast, though, Green, uh, you know, Green, Green is, is uh, uh, you know, he, he can discipline his subordinate commanders. Uh, you know, he, he levies disciplinary action after Hobkirk's Hill. And, you know, even whenever he first takes command of the, of, of the, the army, uh, you know, he, um, he, he court-martials and executes uh, several deserters. And, you know, it sends a very clear message that, uh, you know, we are, we are in to fight and fight hard, and, you know, uh, there's, there, there will be standards and, and accountability. Um, you know, so he, so he has a little bit of a ruthless streak in him uh, towards, towards the victory. Um, that's probably about the extent of it, but I, I think overall he's a very, uh, you know, he seems like he has a good grasp of strategy, and and that was one of the things that stood out uh, with with some you know essays on Green's general generalship, um, you know, because there, there's one uh, one historian, and I won't, I won't quote him, but uh, he just he just really just says he, he feels like Green. Green was not really a strategist, but he, uh, you know, he was he, he was a brilliant improviser, and I'm paraphrasing there. Um, but I think what happens there, though, is is that's where you have the conflating of, of tactics and military strategy, and you know, so by using that structured, you know, the difference between tactics, operation, strategy, grand strategy, it's very clear that the Green, you know, has has a really well uh, developed intellectual grasp. Uh, you know, at the strategic level of war, and because he is pretty well on his own, he develops an effective grand strategy, and then uh, flexible operational plans and tactics to attain his desired end, which is the undisputed uh, American sovereignty. Alan Skinner, thanks again. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate the invite, and I'll look forward, hopefully, to coming back again uh, in the near future. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.